Off the ball. If there was an Ireland job in the future, so I don't know, I think Brendan Rogers as a future Ireland's manager, I, he, I could get behind subscribe this. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Off the ball daily. Now then, you're very welcome back. So, after 38 years at The Independent and five before that at the Irish Press, our next guest is uh, stepping away from permanent employment anyway. We're not calling it a retirement, but uh, it's certainly a moment. Uh, Vincent Hogan, who every time I've introduced you has been chief sports writer with The Irish Independent, that rolls off my tongue. Uh, You're very welcome to the studio. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure, Joe. So, you're... uh, Heading off into uncharted uh, territory, a lifetime spent as a sports writer, not calling it a day as such. No, definitely not, Joe. I'm 63. When I started in this business, I suppose a 63-year-old, I would have, I would have seen them as old people. Um, I don't feel old. Uh, it just feels like it's it, it's very short-termism in my head at the moment. I'm uh, 43 years. Summer Sunday's gone, and that's something that's stopping now and you know it's stopping at the right time because we're only in June um, I'm married to a very smart woman who has basically absorbed all of the parental duties with four children they're, they're all adults now and um, she has her own career and it's only really in the last few months when this became a possibility that I, I started to think about this because the one thing you accept as a sports writer is weekends are going to be busy and for a long time there in the independent I would have had a Monday column as well as going to matches on a Sunday so when do you do your Monday column if you're working on a Sunday well you do it on Saturday and my wife works Monday to Friday so that that really was something that we just absorbed and she absorbed and do you know what I look back on it now and I'm very grateful for the support I've always had but I'm really really looking forward to having summer Sundays off and it's 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 that simple and and that one dimensional and and I know that you know my own postman stuck his head in the window the other day and he said sure you haven't worked a day in your life and and, and I can see why people have that perception of sports journalism and maybe it's not a million miles from the truth <laughs> and so it was a straightforward decision the opportunity was there packages uh, hanging and you think okay well, now's a good time but you you weren't um because I, I, I had heard of Vincent stepping away and I thought, well, I wonder, is he um, fatigued by the whole thing? Like, I appreciate your postman's point of view, but at the same time, there are deadlines and stresses mm. and mm. Uh, you wouldn't be the first or last journalist, I think, who becomes immune to the perks of the job. So I, I had wondered if you were just a touch burnt out by the whole thing. I, I think there is an element of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't see this opportunity coming. Um, it actually, the opportunity was presented uh, to the general staff yeah. in Media House, um, I think it was the week before I went to the Masters. And I remember asking for the figures and I got the figures while I was in Augusta and I sent them to my wife and we were looking at them and I'm, I'm, my, my view was, am I missing something here? Why, why would I not take this? And we got independent advice then. But there is an element of that, Joe. There is an element of you know, 43 years doing the same thing. And the the, the job has changed profoundly. Um, I'll give you an example. My last hurling match now for the Independent was the Cork Limerick match in the Gaelic grounds, uh, won by a single point by Limerick, an epic game. But my job that, uh, that day was a live, on the whistle, 1,000 word report 
Um, now there's 50 odd scores in that match. There's late substitutions. Um, hurling is just extraordinarily fast from a puck out to a score can be 2.5 seconds sometimes. And so you have to file on the whistle about a thousand word report that goes straight up online. Mm. And then you go down to get reaction and then you come back and then you do your report for the newspaper and then you do a reaction piece. And I just think at 63 years of age, I, I probably find that more challenging than some of the younger colleagues who are absolutely breathtakingly good at, at this. I find myself uh, quite anxious going to these games and just thinking I, I'm, I have to make sure I don't miss anything. And... Um, the one thing I really wanted to avoid was just not being able to do it properly, not being able to, you know, that this thing of sitting at a match and because your head is in your laptop a lot of the time, you're, t you're, you're lifting your head and you're saying, who scored that? And I think that can be incredibly irritating sometimes for your colleagues in the press box. Um, and I just think, you know, I, I really don't want to get to a point where people are saying, Jesus, he's he's miles off the pace or something. And, you know, at this stage, you kind of feel, I, I don't feel I'm really enjoying matches. I, I don't feel, and again, I get this thing of it's not real work and people will say that, but I've always seen it as real work. I've always, uh, it's not something I've maybe shown very openly, but I've always been anxious about work. You know, I've gone to some of the biggest events in the world and I can tell people, say, oh, he's at an Olympics. Jesus, enjoy, have a ball. There's the number of times people would say that to you. And all I would feel would be a knot in my stomach. And um, so I'm, I'm just at that stage, Joe, where I'm really lucky that I have the opportunity to do this. Mm. By no means am I going to stop, you know, but I'm, I'm definitely going to take a few months of the summer and recharge batteries and maybe pay a little more attention to my family um, and who are at least deserving of that and uh, just see what's what's out there. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've no idea what's out there, but I'm excited by what could be out there. I, I suspect your colleagues will be very surprised to hear of the anxiety at this stage going to games. But as you've explained it, it makes total sense. It's a commitment to standards. I want to totally, do a good job yeah. and there's never a guarantee you're going to do a good job on any given day in this uh, profession no absolutely not and um, you know I, I joined the Irish press in 1980 just after David Walsh um, and Martin Brehany would have gone in there at the same time and like it seems such a lifetime ago I, I remember one of the first big things I did when I joined the independent then in I joined the independent in 85 one of the first things they sent me to was the 87 Rugby World Cup in Australia New Zealand and I travelled to that with Sean Diffley, who was the rugby correspondent of the Irish Independent and used to do athletics at one stage as well. Sean was older than my dad. And it's, again, it's, it's only when you look back on these things that you, it, it strikes you that this man was older my, than my dad, but he was such a good colleague to travel with. He was so, f he was so funny. Mm. Um, he never said, he never paid me a single compliment in his life, but I loved him dearly. <laughs> and it was because he he was always just fun to be with. Mm. And it's one of the things that I'd be very conscious of. I'm, I'm in, involved in Dublin Journalist Golf Society and huge disparity in ages across the whole society. And some of the best colleagues are 
company you can have. There are guys in their 80s like Sean Dignan, the former political correspondent of RTL. I tell you, you would not spend a better four hours than four hours with Sean Dignan on a golf course. And Sean is in his mid-80s. And I think the one thing that I've learned over the years is that you, you don't have to be what people presume your age should, should tell you to be. You can be whoever you like at any age. And I think optimism is a great quality in people. And, you know, just this sense of smiling and, and seeing the, positive, the positives of life. And, you know, people like Sean Diffley and Sean Dignan, they're, they're life lessons to be, to be spent with these people. Um, so they're the people that I miss, um, you know, on the beat because everything right now is immediacy. It's digital. It's deadlines that are bananas. You know, for example, if I was at the Gibraltar match, as my colleagues would have been on, on Monday night, the match would end 25 to 10, 20 to 10, maybe. Your deadline is 10 to 10. Um, and, and I'm not sure that the readers really understand the compression of time that journalists nowadays are working within and, and having to work within a shape or, you know, put in a heading the quotes, subheading the quotes, a pull quote that, 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 that fits. All of these things, I think I'm just at a, an age where I'm kind of thinking... I don't enjoy this. Yeah, I never understood the deadlines around matches, I have to say. They don't actually make sense by the laws of physics. I don't know how you all do it. So it is like a daily dose of um, cortisol and stress <laughs> and panic. And, and then I'm sure criticism on your social media for the next 24 hours about the one well. you got wrong. So, you know, I can I can see all of that. Um, but it would strike me you must... Do you, is, is the aspect you would still really enjoy, gravitate towards and maybe continue in some capacity or otherwise sitting down interviewing someone, writing a more considered piece. Is, is that as enjoyable as ever or is that dwindling? Oh, oh, totally. I remember a couple of years ago, I, I went up to Donegal to interview um, Jason Quigley. And it was a, an interview that was available online if I wanted to do a, uh, a Zoom call or whatever. And I said, no, I, I've never spoken to Jason. I'd love to go up to him and, and just I spent two hours with Jason and it was something I'd forgotten how pleasurable that can be, just the face to face thing. And, you know, it's it's something that's really missing from our job right now is that intimacy of contact. Um, it's now very superficial. I think particularly with the GA, I find it really frustrating that this is kind of a closed book in terms of you, you don't even think of ringing somebody no. now. And it struck me in 1998 when you had those three extraordinary games between Clare and Offaly and you had the Jimmy Cooney situation, the second game where he blew up five minutes early. I went down and did an interview with Jimmy in his home with his wife Kay one month later. Mm. A lovely interview and I actually looked it up today and the positivity of the reaction they'd got and then subsequently I heard the reaction they got to the piece because it was a human piece. Yeah. That wouldn't happen now. That just wouldn't happen now. Um, and God, I miss that. I really miss. I miss. We used to go on soccer trips. I remember being in Macedonia. We used to be in the same hotel as the team, the same flight as the team. We, they, The players knew who we were. We knew who they were, obviously. I remember doorstepping Roy Keane coming out of lunch in the team hotel in Macedonia one year. 
and saying, Roy, would you do a piece? Can you imagine doing that now? Mm. And just got Roy in a good day, sat down with me for 45 minutes, a full broadsheet page in The Independent the following day, and a really, I'd like to think, a really intelligent interview, cause, because when you get Roy, as you know, when you get Roy and he's, he's interested in talking, he's very, very intelligent, and he gives you a very considered interview. You know, now you're not even in the same hotel, and like I haven't gone on the soccer trips anyway for about ten years because I just couldn't bear it. The, just the superficiality of the contact, and um, you're just getting the same as everyone else is getting. Look, do you know what? I'm very conscious of my painting sports writer's life as as a bit miserable. It's not. It's it's nothing like that. I just think that for me, after forty three years, I I probably just felt somebody should be in this seat who really wants to be here, yeah. who really has this curiosity about being here, and some brilliant young journalists. Like I often speak to some of the UK writers because I would know them from my time with haters in, in London, and they're always talking about the quality of sports writing in Ireland, and, and they're not wrong, but it's continuing. There are young sports writers coming through that would write me under the table, and do you know what? It's, it's brilliant to read them. It's brilliant to read them. It's also intimidating to read them because they're so good and they're so sharp and they have that curiosity, that endless curiosity, and they want to be at these things. And I'm probably at a stage where I don't want to be there. Yeah. Well, I think it's very difficult if you've had maybe 20 or 30 years where you could doorstep Roy Keane and then you could produce an interview mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. to feign the excitement to yourself as much as everybody else at, well, now I get to stick my microphone over someone's shoulder and, and we get to talk to a player for two, three minutes if we're lucky. The, the superficiality is the word you used. Mm. And that's, that's kind of characterised the last decade, I would feel, in terms of those interactions. It is massively. And I, I think it's a huge frustration that you kind of... I was, I was watching a thing with the Rolling Stones last night and Charlie Watts, the drummer, were described what it's like being in a band. And he said, 25 years of being in a band, it's five years of work and 20, 20 years of hanging around. And yeah. there's so many hours of hanging around as a journalist, standing outside dressing rooms, for nothing quotes. For nothing quotes. and But you have to be there just in case for once in the blue moon there's a yes. quote that m that triggers a story. And um, I kind of found that, you know, at this stage of my life, a little bit undignified to be standing there, you know. And that may sound a bit up my own backside, and I don't mean it that way, but just got to the stage where I'm thinking, I really don't feel this is for me anymore, mm. you know. And... Uh, one thing I'd say, Joe, if, if my career had worked out the way I hoped it would when I was young, I'd be sitting over there because I always wanted to be a broadcaster. And um, We've sometimes said that behind your back here when you've done the <laughs> pay-per-view. So he's a bloody good broadcaster as well. No, I'm not sure about that, but I started off in, in Hater's Sports Agency when I was um, in London when I was 17. And that would have been my ambition yeah. to be a broadcaster. And I would have done a lot of radio work for haters, you know, first division matches as they were at the time. And um, and I always thought that's the way I would go because I was never a prolific reader. Um, but I loved the English language and I loved uh, BBC Radio 2 used to have Peter Jones and Brian Butler. And in those days, there was very little English football on television. So it was Radio 2, BBC Radio 2 that you listened to. And their use of language was just so elegant. And, you know, it's like you know, I think it was Peter Jones's famous line at the end of Hillsborough, and the sun shines now. And you just think, he's just done that off the cuff. 
and it's it's I think it's a book written with that as the title now since about Hillsborough and it's such a, a stunningly beautiful line that captures the horror in in many ways that the the audacity of the sun to come out um so they they would have been my journalistic heroes um and then uh, you know latterly kind of people like Ian Woolridge of the Mail was just this acerbic sports columnist who was just a genius James Lawton uh, my god what a what a joy to meet James Lawton and I sat beside James Lawton um who would have been one of my heroes at at Cheltenham in the, in the old press room in Cheltenham a few times and I was just fascinated to see how he worked and you know James would be there sitting beside me and I couldn't help but look just a blinking cursor on the screen not a word written and he'd be there for 45 minutes and he'd go out for a smoke and I'm thinking Jesus he's human this guy is human and I have my maybe two paragraphs written I'm thinking I'm I'm quicker than James Lawton here and then he'd come in and 50 minutes later he's filed this thousand words of poetry and he's gone and I have four paragraphs written and he just but you know they say never meet your hero my god James Lawton and it's terrible to think he's gone now but what a lovely man and what a what a privilege to sit beside him and just to speak to him about journalism he was still doing great stuff right at the end oh totally he could write about anything and it it was literally poetry Mm. yeah because I mean see I'd be torn I I would love reading the papers Mm. and half the reason to do the Sunday paper review is just because of that kind of love that you hope next generation have too you'd love the the written word to still have that place especially in sport for some reason because it can be so uh, evocative but I definitely from a work point of view feel a touch more privileged and lucky that there's a bit more of an intimacy and a one-on-one quality to this job mm. on a daily basis. Absolutely. Whereas yeah. for you, like sitting down doing Joe Canning interview a couple of years ago, which was a great one, or ones like that, um, they're less of the daily treat and more mm. of the once a month, once every two months, <laughs> less these days, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, the Joe one, again, just so refreshing to sit down with somebody who actually decided I'm going to engage with this, you yeah. know, and, and actually the I did two lengthy interviews with Joe. The, the first one was in 2017 and it was supposed to happen the week after the Leinster final and and I was away on holidays and I specifically asked would Joe do it um, the week before the All-Ireland semi-final against Tipperary and Joe agreed. He didn't have to agree and Joe agreed and we met he gave me two hours and he was just, I mean, you've had Joe in here, I'm sure. Mm. And he's just a really bright, yeah. engaging person who's, in, who's an interest in so many different things outside of hurling. And um, he just gave me this incredible interview. And I, and I, I remember just being so energized driving away from it. And But then I was really torn because I'm from Tipperary and they were playing Tip the following Sunday in that semi-final and he scored that incredible point from under the under the Cusick stand and you're thinking there was a huge part of me thinking if Galway lose this people will be saying Joe should never have given that interview Mm. because that is the mindset of the modern GA oh shut up he shouldn't have given that interview. So when Joe got that, I mean, I was devastated for Tip, but do you know what? I was so happy for Joe. Yeah. I was so happy that he, A, he had the independence of mind to do that interview a week before the semi-final rather than two or three weeks earlier when the agreement had been for, for then. And B, that he just delivered on that moment because Joe Canning is just 
one of those people that you would just go out of your way to watch yeah. you know even if just pucking a ball against a a ball alley you you just watch him because of his skill but he's also just a, a proper human being you know and he's done a lot of stuff that you'd be proud of you know one last one if if the initial part of this chat was maybe about the the landscape of journalism and how it's changed i i, I get asked through various um you know i get an email or i get a, a tweet from someone i'm sure you're the same you know would you recommend journalism as a place for <laughs> my young fella or my daughter to go work in or from that young person themselves I really hesitate to recommend it, I have to say. Um, I wouldn't say my email's always been the most encouraging. I'm definitely flashing the, the downsides up front and early. I mean, I feel the avenue for a lot of probably very talented young writers now is to go in on very little money and have to write pieces about what Pundit X has just said and pump them out 10 times a day. I, and, and then beyond that, I don't know how hospitable the landscape is. It's a small market in Ireland. Margins are tight. Are you optimistic about the future of journalism? Do, do you tend to give a thumbs up recommendation? I, you know, I've, I've had so many emails from young people over the years, you know, give me a bit of advice and you kind of bite your lip a bit. Um, my own eldest son, he did two years in Griffith College, did journalism and, and I was relieved when he stepped away from it because I didn't, excuse me, I, I, I didn't really see a great future in it and, and I see how young journalists it's it's a tough it's yeah. a tough game to make money in, and yet I I think if given time, Joe, I, I I look you know there's there's a new form of journalism there, and you know I look at for example the forty two, and you know I would have met Gavin Cooney for the first time in in Augusta, and I gave him a lift back from Augusta to Atlanta Airport, and we were chatting away, and I then read a rap piece he did from Augusta, about six thousand words. Mm-hmm. And I would challenge anyone that there's, there's nothing better being written about Augusta 2023 than what he wrote. It was stunning. He's one of the scary young ones you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. one of those really intimidating. He looks about 12 and um, but a brilliant talent. And, and, I, and I think there's a there's a new journalism there where my whole history in journalism, you had a limit on the words you could use mm. and you wrote to that limit. And so you were always within that constraint. And the idea of writing into the cloud is it's a bit mind-boggling to me and because how do you have how do you discipline yourself within that that shape but you know i think there is there's a changing landscape there how you monetize it i don't know because Mm. i think there is still that element of maybe maybe under appreciating right now really good writing and and I'm, i'm hoping that's going to come back i think it's coming back a bit in america that real quality of analysis and insight and just giving a different view on things, a bit different perspective on things, it should be valued. And, and I'm hoping it's coming back in sport. Yeah, maybe. I guess the Internet's been this bomb. We've had it about a decade yeah, and so absolutely, maybe. Absolutely. But you know what? Even within that, we still have brilliant writing here. Brilliant writing. And, and I, you know, I, I mentioned Gavin, there, there's so many people out there that I'm not even going to start mentioning yes. them because I'll forget someone <laughs> else. But we have brilliant sports writers in this country. We're blessed. Mm. Um, to chat then about some of your experiences, do you have a favourite sports person? It's a p- predictable one, really. Paul McGrath and Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife accuses me of a, having a man crush on Jurgen Klopp because every time she walks into the 
into the office I'm, I'm watching the latest club press conference and I'm instinctively smiling yeah <laughs> so um, yeah look Paul for obvious reasons would be very dear to me um, what year was that book now 2006 six. what was your relationship with them in the year 2000 I, I always had a good relationship with Paul because actually one of the first things the independent asked me to do when I joined in 85 was they sent me to Manchester to meet Paul because I was going to be ghostwriting his Saturday column for the independent and I met him for a few pints in a pub beside Old Trafford and you know how could you not like Paul McGrath and uh, so I used to ring Paul on a Friday when he was playing with United and do a Saturday column and then in I think it was 90s would he, gi- would he give you stuff in that column or was it all not, you know? not, not hugely because you know Paul is Paul is Paul and, and the essence of the book was getting other people to talk about him and then going back to Paul mm. so but he the, the one thing I'd say he was always there when he said he'd be there and he was always a decent human being to deal with which I've always felt is the case and then when he had his international testimonial I think it was 97 or 98 I was asked to do the programme for that which is a fairly sizable booklet and we were always friendly and the book came about then from he was going through a tough time and I was just visiting him in the Rutland as a friend Right. and uh, he had asked me a number of times to do the book and he'd already done a book I think in 1994 just a conventional footballer's book and Jesus I, I, I wasn't really kind of taking the bait and then I thought about it and I thought do you know what this guy is such a huge figure in our, our sport and we know nothing about his mum we know nothing about his life really in the orphanages and and so that's the base on which I did that and it was kind of access all areas and you know people like Alex Ferguson and Graham Taylor and Ron Atkinson they just came on board immediately and couldn't have been more helpful and um I'm very proud of the book, but I'm very conscious that it's 17 years ago and that, you know, I'm still kind of get people talking to me about a book that really it was just a tribute to him being open. That when I threw this stuff back at him, he didn't draw a line through it and he could have. Because I've only read it once, but the passages of about the orphanage are still very memorable. Mm. What was it like having him talk? about that he must have got upset at times during that or no because, because you know what Paul isn't the type of guy to get upset even about that subject no I, I mean I think the most harrowing story from the orphanage is when he talks about his mum bringing him out to visit someone ostensibly to visit someone and, and then she disappears and he finds he's back in the orphanages again I think everyone who reads that is just oh my god yeah. you know how how does that child cope how does she cope walking back out of that orphanage um, to be honest I've no idea mm. but Paul is so impassive and you know he, he can tell you about the most horrible stuff and he's just kind of shrugging his shoulders because I remember one of the I think the opening chapter in that book is about going to Man- Manchester Crown Court in a, the back of a police van And he just happened to tell me this in passing in the front room of the house as we were finishing up the book. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. But it it, to Paul was just another part of the chaos, Mm. um, chaos that he just accepted as part of his his issues. And um, but, you know, what? my my kids had had no sense of the scale of 
star he was. Um, and my youngest lad, he's 26 now, the Paul McGrath book would have been beside his bed for 10 years and he would never have opened it. And then one of, one, out of the blue one day he came down and said to me, did Paul play for Manchester United? I was saying, wow. Because to, to my kids, Paul was just this big, warm, friendly man who came in the door. He's a hugger. He's very tactile. They just loved him from the get-go, but he was just someone that Dad was doing a book with. Mm. Um, they had no sense of the scale of who he is. But the thing I love, Joe, is that Paul is very proud of the book. And, and Paul still tells me, we did a thing there a few months ago for The Independent, he still gets people talking to him about the book and, and the openness and the honesty of the book. And that's what I'm proud about. You know, we got the awards and whatever, but our friendship is, the, is still there. And, and he's really proud that he did that book mm. and that he didn't back away from anything. And you know what? He, st he still has his moments, but he's, he's a happy man. He's a happy grandfather. He's a happy father. His kids love him. His grandchildren love him. And I don't think there's a more loved Irish sports star. I really he's, don't. He's up there. So if the ways of not getting anything wrong between Limerick and Cork weighs on you. The weight of not screwing that book up must have weighed on you. Was that a difficult one to write in that respect? Oh, that was extraordinary. <laughs> that was just extraordinary because I was in, I had issues with Random House who publishes these London publishers who um, I refused to sign the contract because they wanted me to absorb all potential legal issues with the book and I said, not a chance. And actually I had the book practically written and I hadn't submitted a single chapter. Um, and I thought I was going mad. I really thought I was going mad because I was I was unearthing all of this stuff. I had taken four months unpaid leave of absence from the independent. I I thought I was unearthing this stuff. And, and then, you know, you just start to feel, you know, what am I doing here? What, what, what have I done? You know, and I got a very hostile email one time. One, I, was, I remember I was sick in bed one morning and I got a, a very hostile email from Random House who, who I think they probably suspected I had done nothing because I hadn't <laughs> submitted anything mm. and I sent a really angry email back about I'm not signing that contract and I will not submit anything until you give me a contract and so I sent them one chapter and I got the contract the following day okay so and then it took off and within six months of the book coming out they came over the center a group over to meet Paul and me in Dublin to write a second book and uh, Paul was keen to go and I said no not a chance it just it absolutely it it drove me to the point of insanity and uh, I I'm really proud of it it's probably the thing that makes me most proud of my career okay but by God it emptied me it really emptied me physically and emotionally and uh, again you go back to your partner my wife if I didn't have the support I had at home, that book would never have seen the light of day. Mm. Not a chance. Mm. Uh, do you feel like you had a peak decade as a journalist? Oh, God, I th that sounds very kind of <laughs> full of myself yeah. to say something. I just mean it in terms of I the ebb and flow and, and some, there is a creative aspect to it. And maybe it's your energy levels or how good you're feeling or otherwise, but or maybe it's experience. I don't know. But do you feel like, God, I was really knocking out great stuff then for whatever reason? I, I think I would go back to the early 90s, 93, where the Independent, and I, w I will always be so grateful to the Independent for what they 
the exposure they gave me and the trust they put in me. But I, I remember around 93, 94, I was basically told, look, just cover anything you want. Okay. Just do whatever you want. And one of the things I did was Mike Tyson came out of jail after three years for his rape sentence. And his first fight was against an Irish-American called Pete McNeely. I'm thinking an Irish-American is going to fight Tyson. I've got to get an interview with this guy. And I tracked down his trainer and manager, who was a guy called Vinny Vecchioni, who was um, the Americans, the American media described him as a small time mobster. And one of the first things he did, I, Vinny said, yeah, come over, we'll give you a week and we'll get just talking to Pete. And first thing he showed me was he had two bullet wounds. And it was just mm. just this most surreal week I spent in Boston. but. I remember every day I'd say to Vinny, you know, can I talk to Pete today? And he'd say, no, he's, he, he's like a bear today. Just leave him alone, you know. And I kind of started to twig that McNeely was doing all the talk shows, Letterman and all of these things. And he had this phrase that he used about Tyson. I'm going to wrap him in a cocoon of horror and all of this. And he was, so he was playing to the galleries. I kind of just twigged. I think he's terrified. And... I remember my last day in the gym, I said, Vinny, you know, any chance I can I can get Pete? And he said, go try yourself, I'm not asking yeah. him. And I asked McNeely and he came out and he sat in a fire exit with me. And I got this interview with him where I, I kind of said to him, you know, I'm, I'm watching you for a week and I, do you feel you're being treated like a piece of meat? And it was a question that seemed to engage him on a human level rather than this poster for the guy who was going to go after Tyson, and he was—he was—he was an intelligent guy, a really college-educated, intelligent guy, who was terrified. Mm. And I—I I just knew he was terrified. And of course, that fight lasted something like 96 seconds, where he just went charging after Tyson, and he was dropped three times. And Vecchioni um, climbed into the ring to stop the fight. Now, normally, you just throw the towel in. But this guy that the American media had kind of tagged as a small time mobster, he kind of forgot where he was and he just stopped and he just charged in. And of course, the first thing that happens when you do that is you're disqualified. Mm. Your fighter is disqualified. So they were due to get three quarters of a million dollars for the fight. So by in, climb, in climbing into the ring, they weren't going to get their purse. But he had the fundamental decency to care about the fighter. And it's like a penny dropped over the next few months because Ring Magazine made, made Vecchioni their boxing manager of the year subsequently because they did get the purse. The purse was released. Um, and I just thought, if ever there's a, a lesson in not judging a book by the cover, A, in McNeely, who was just going around as a braggart, but was terrified, and B, in this so-called small-time mobster who's dead since, who wore this kind of scally cap and played up to the mm. thing of being a... A, a kind of a, a rogue but in that moment his instinct was to jump in the ring and stop the fight Yeah, and he was going to lose the biggest pay their, payday of their lives Just, but that was his instinct it was a, an instinct of decency yes so that's a great thing in 93 to be told go where your mm. nose takes you mm. and 06 you got the McGrath highlight and like I mean I, I certainly remember the last 15 years very well and you, it seems like you're having a great time and doing great stuff. I listened out of interest again last night to the Tainted podcast. 
about Michelle Smith de Bruyne mm. and listen to your contributions on it. And that sounds like a bloody miserable uh, time, uh, certainly in memory. And you say, I don't feel great reading my uh, pieces from back then. And, and those couple of years were obviously very stressful. Uh, did they like dominate that period or were you still enjoying covering GA and covering other sports? What are your reflections on that period now? Because I know it was so divisive uh, between journalists. It was incredibly divisive. The only other thing comparable was probably Saipan, okay. um, where journalists took sides. It was Mick or, or Roy. Um, the Michelle one was, to me, it, 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 it encapsulated how uneasy I always felt going to an Olympics. Um, because, and I used to joke with Billy Walsh about this, that every four years he'd see my number coming up on his on his phone and he'd say, oh, it's Olympic year. Yeah. He's suddenly interested. Yeah. And and I, I used to laugh about that because it was so true. You know, GA was my main beat. Um, and then every now, every four years, you're just catapulted into this environment. And Atlanta would have been my first Olympics. And I was completely intimidated. And I remember... I the day before I flew out, I was at the Munster hurling fi- hurling final replay in Cork. Came home, packed a bag at two in the morning, and went to Atlanta. And the journalists who were scrutinising um, Michelle Smith had put so much research mm. and energy into it, and now I'm just catapulted into this environment. And I remember having lunch with David Walsh in the main press centre and. Um, you know, David talking about it and, and I'm kind of just sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to do here? Mm-hmm. And basically what I did was I just took the idea that innocent unless proved guilty. And I suppose it was the editorial line that the Irish Independent took as well. Um, and I remember, you know, I, I think back to that time I used to ring my parents and They'd, they'd all be going to friends' houses or their friends would be coming to them to watch the swimming. And, and it was just, you know, happy, happy time. Yeah, and mania. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do look back. I'm not very proud of, you know, the fact that I just went with the populist thing and went with the flow. And, and, I, and I do see now, in hindsight, how isolated some of the journalists who were going after would have felt because they were going against the national mm. the national mood and that hostility um, would have broken out into relationships in the in the press box and you know would, would have been fairly kind of fairly tense place to be sometimes um, and little comments paid to one another and, and you know I would never be an aggressor in that situation but the typical male thing if someone had a pop at me I'd I'd have double the pop back and just became a little bit childish and petty. And I eventually did write that column. I don't know what year it was. Was it 20 years later? Um, And I just told the truth, basically, about what I felt. And did I believe in her? No, I I, I didn't really. Um, But I just was at my first Olympics and I just basically was going to go with the flow and I've I've always found as a writer the Olympics incredibly challenging and intimidating It's funny on the the podcast Paul Howard who was one of those who Mm. raised questions and flew to Holland and uh, brought up issues with Eric de Bruyne's past he he made he did to be fair uh, without exonerating um, 
people who kind of were waving the tricolour to use that phrase. He did make the fair enough observation. He did. He was very grateful he wasn't on the Daily Beat mm. and having to do the equivalent of the match report because mm. that's a harder thing. It's like really, yeah. you have to give an account of what happened and it's a great achievement and yet then there are these obviously very significant uh, questions to be answered and get the tone of that perfectly right day in, day out, day in, day out, as opposed to having maybe six days to find the right mm. phraseology. So I thought that was an interesting observation, which maybe goes to your uh, predicament of covering the Olympics. It's, it's very hard on the whole to know how to frame a lot of what you're seeing. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, particularly on the Daily Beat, as you say, because it's just coming at you in a frenzied kind of environment yeah. almost like one of the things that I, I've often thought like I mean when I was in Beijing at midnight one day one night I got a phone call that Dennis Lynch's horse had tested positive in Hong Kong mm. we need a two-page spread or in Rio at seven o'clock in the morning Pat Hickey has been arrested mm. um, can you make a few calls now I, I don't speak Portuguese so yeah. who do you ring I've always gone to an Olympics uh, with a knot in my stomach um, for that very reason that I'm you just never know what's going to be thrown at you and and in, in that situation with Michelle obviously it had been flagged in advance that people doubted the improvement yeah. and all of that um, but it was you know what are you going to do you know she wins her first gold medal are you going to you know cast aspersions on it when you haven't done this research you don't really you don't really know um, what what the others are talking about here. Um, so no, it was just I I, I, I do remember when it, where it was was it two years later when there was the urine in the in the sample and uh, or the the whiskey in the urine sample yeah. and um, Vinnie Doyle who was this great you know one of the greatest newspaper editors probably in Ireland ever and he rang me and he said. Uh, you know, we we waved the flag for Michelle two years ago. Now, I want you to write the editorial, and um, that was one of the most challenging things I ever faced. And you know, when I think back on the editorial I wrote, because I it's the only editorial I've ever written for the mm. Independent in my life, it was actually it was just being it was just being clever with words that's what it was because it, rather than I, 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 you know I couldn't say we were wrong I kind of I, you know when I look back on it it was just being clever with words and it was a hugely challenging thing to do um, but I kind of had to do it you know and uh, did I say mea culpa no I didn't that, that took about 18 years later mm. you know but look I mean I, I don't feel particularly guilty about it either I mean I you know it's 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 not something that I not haunted by it either. no and yeah. I, I it wasn't I wasn't brazenly you know doing something that I didn't believe in I was kind of taking the easy option yeah you know and uh, that's I'm not particularly proud of that at the time um, but I'm not haunted by it no yeah. What about Saipan, which you mentioned? Well, I wasn't in Saipan, but I was in Iz Izumo. So um, I would have been very much on Mick McCarthy's side. Um, did you have a good uh, relationship with Mick? Yeah, I think most of us did at the time, okay. yeah. And what was your relationship with Roy, aside from... Uh, well, no one had a relationship with Roy, really. Okay. I mean, you know, Roy, as I say, 
you know, that time in Macedonia would would do an interview with you um, if if it suited him. Yeah. Um, but no, you you never had a relationship with Roy. Um, I I would have felt, you know, at the time that Roy, you know, anecdotally what I was hearing was that Roy was very difficult mm. to deal with out there. There had been even stories about before they left and that it was really a situation where I think there was 23 people in the squad and there were there was a lot of focus on one person mm. and you know, you're going to the World Cup. So this all kicked off as I was flying to Ismo and that first week in Ismo, it wasn't about the World Cup. It was about is Roy coming back? And I'll always remember the Tommy Gorman interview particularly because these were the days of very basic communications and very basic computers and and i've always been a luddite when it comes to technology but the smartest guys in the room were always the photographers they were technologically savvy yeah and they would have wired up a thing in a bedroom so that we could watch the tommy gorman interview which was i think about two in the morning over there Mm -hmm. and we, we couldn't file anything until we knew what roy was going to say to tommy and I always have this vivid memory of 20 of us in the bedrooms in Japan are not very big. <laughs> and there's 20 of us waiting for this moment where he's saying he's going back. And then he doesn't say it. And then we have to go across to the team hotel where we're waiting to get mixed reaction to him not saying if he's coming back. Uh, it was it was I a presume, bizarre time. I presume Mick wasn't there at 2 a.m. to give you the no, answer. No, Mick was certainly not there. Yeah. We were kind of waiting. I remember Mick Byrne, the physio, and he waving a white a white towel out. <laughs> would you ever go away and give us a break? <laughs> but like w- journalists would have had screaming matches, you know, socially. You know, you do your stuff and you you go for a beer, and there would be screaming matches because that was Mick's side, that was Roy's side, yeah. And it was really you know, embittered, um, and just. Again, a really, a really intense time. I would have, I would have ghostwritten Niall Quinn at the time, and and Niall was going through such turmoil. Yeah, and you know, it became a situation for me where my own pieces were were relatively short because Niall's situation in the whole conflict was so fundamental that I I ended up Niall's columns were three thousand words at times where he's describing what's gone on during the night, and uh, he was compelling about it and. Uh, you look back on it and really it was just it, it was just an emotional roller coaster um, until they got to the time where they played the Cameroon match and Matt Holland got the equaliser and, and, and then it's about the World Cup yeah. and Roy's at home walking Trigger or Triggs or whatever and uh, would you still be of a similar mindset? I would um, do you know what I've often been accused and again social media is so funny because you know I've written so many pieces about Roy Keane over the years mm-hmm. and I've always said, you know, my, my biggest problem in journalism was that if if Roy sneezed, I'd get a phone call to do a two page spread on Roy. <laughs> and I've, I I've know o- the feeling. I've often been accused on social media. My God, you're so obsessed, obsessed with Roy Keane. Right. I honestly, Joe, would not have written a single line about Roy Keane in 20 years if I could have got away with it. I don't find Roy fascinating as a pundit. Um, I find Roy um, kind of just playing to almost to satire, yeah. you know, that he's just endlessly cross and endlessly intolerant of people around him. But he's doing exactly what he said he wouldn't do. Um, but I, I still would say that when he wants to be, he's 
he's very intelligent F- funny yeah. I would have thought anytime you've written about Roy Keane it's because you're fascinated by him no. as opposed to you got a God, phone call no. I thought in 93 they said you, you could do what you want no well <laughs> that changed obviously I didn't do it well enough <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. And um, there's loads of messages coming in. A lot of people are saying they're going to desperately miss you and they hope you're, you're not away for too long, uh, which you'll be glad to hear. Uh, one event you could cover one more time, asked Peter. Augusta. I, I, I was... I did, by the way, as yeah, you were like laughing about the postman saying, sure, you don't work. And I was talking about the stresses. And then you said, well, yes, it was. I, I weighed up my options when I was in Augusta. I did think, well, maybe the postman has a point here as you. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 it's funny because I, I was in Augusta in 93 um, where they sent me just out of the blue um, the year Langer won. And I came out of the hat and I played Augusta National. And I was it was just ridiculous because yeah. I didn't play golf at the time. And then I went back in 2018 and I play golf now. And I just... Of all the places you go to be out on that golf course, Joe, um, it's just magical. It's just an absolutely magical place to be. And, you know, I was there obviously when Tiger won and and actually you sent me a lovely message um, after that. But I remember the one big problem, of course, as a journalist is the five hours and you're, you're under pressure with the five hour thing. But when Tiger won, they'd brought play forward by two hours because of a storm that yeah. was coming in. Oh, I remember I was working here and I was not pleased with that situation. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly you're thinking, because uh, I never thought he was going to win. Yeah. And then you're thinking, Molinari puts the ball in the Boy, 12th in the yeah. water and it's like, Jesus. But I remember getting a panic then. I thought Patrick Cantley was going to win and I, I started Googling Cantley. I, yeah. Who is Patrick Cantley? Yeah. That was the nightmare scenario for me. You were being asked for a shorter word count uh, for the Cantley win. Oh, I mean, you just have your shape and that's it. Like, and, and, and suddenly Tiger wins. And, you know, I remember being in here with Marie Crow. And as, as a woman, I can see why you would have very mixed feelings about Tiger Woods on, on any level. Yeah. Um, and I was saying, I, I understand that. But it was the best story in sport. It was just, to me, it was the story you wanted to write. Um, and you know to have the extra two hours rather than be right up in the deadline mm. so that was just such a pleasurable thing as a journalist to be there yeah. and to be to have the, the luxury time. of time to do it but of, of all the places i've gone and i i think the one thing that years and years of being in press boxes and that you lose your wow factor you lose that sense of god it's great to be here you know Sometimes I might get it at a hurling final or a Munster final or something like that. But by and large, it's work, it's deadlines. But you just get that thing in Augusta National where just being out in that golf course and, you know, just feeling, God, it's so lucky to be alive, Mm. to be out here and seeing these golf holes where my kids, for example, would have no interest in golf. But Master Sunday, the back nine, they know the holes. They know the holes. They just switch to a hole. Oh, that's the twelfth, you know. And it's. Uh, I think because it's the same course every year, and because it's stunningly picturesque, mm-hmm. and it has this history. Yeah, I, I think if there's one place I could go back to, be Augusta. Did uh, Vincent have any clashes with GA managers over the years? I would imagine Cody was some man to pull you up in a piece. So the texture. Not really with Cody, no. No, never. No, um, I, I guess to be fair, there weren't many bad pieces to be written about Cody. No, 
Um, I, I remember at one stage in my career, I used to do this thing where I would, um, before the championship started, I would go down and meet all the managers, you know, when they would when they would talk yeah. in a one-to-one situation. And I found Cody always very agreeable. Uh, I'd go down to a Nolan Park training and he'd just sit up in the stand and, and chat to me. Mm. No, I, I've, I've really, ha- I've never had a, a falling out with a manager that I can think of. Um, but I, I have found it really frustrating in latter years that, that how closed the whole GA has become. Am I right in saying, do I remember you being on a Saturday panel and being deeply frustrated with Jim Gavin for the delay one year? The, the, the situation with Jim Gavin was, I was just reiterating something I said to Jim myself. Okay. And, and that was to do with 2013, um, an All-Ireland semi-final against Kerry. And people might remember Gooch Cooper played centre-forward, yes, Joe yeah, Brennan marking yeah. him. Kerry got three goals in the, in the first half and, and Gooch was just pulling the strings yeah. as only Gooch could. And for some reason, Jim brought Stephen Cluxton into the press conference. Um, no one really kind of knew why, but Stephen came in and about 10 or 11 questions into the press conference, no one had asked Stephen anything. And I asked Stephen, uh, just out of courtesy, you know, had the movement of the Kerry forwards presented a problem that mm. they hadn't encountered up to then. And Stephen's answer was, I don't know, I wasn't marking any of them. And I just thought it was a really ignorant, you know, a really poor reply that I, I kind of expected Jim to intervene and say, well, I can see what you're talking about. But he just left it hanging there. And uh, I would have tackled Jim, met him socially subsequent to that. And I would have really gone through him for a shortcut um, on that level because I just felt there's a common courtesy here. You know, you don't have to, you know, if, if you don't want to engage, don't come in. Sure. Don't come in. And, and I've always felt very strongly about that. They have no obligation to come in. But if you come in, just... Courtesy, mm. common courtesy. So I would have, I would have let Jim know in no uncertain terms. So I was in here subsequently, and I and I said what I said, basically, exactly what I'd said to Jim, Jim's face. Okay. So, 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 Jim's under no illusions what I thought about that moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is hurling your favourite sport? Oh, that, yeah. that's oh. the one that gets the heart pumping. Joe, I've been to six Olympic Games, World Cups, whatever. There's nothing like hurling. In my view, there is nothing. Um, it's just, it's ridiculous. Hurling is ridiculous. And the physical input of players is ridiculous. And I've, I've, I've like, I was a really cowardly hurler <laughs> in Tipperary. And I'd, I'd say that very openly. And anyone who hurled with me would say, let me tell you how cowardly he was. Uh, no issues with that. But, th- but then when I was hurling, uh, no one wore a helmet. Like I, I just I can't, I, I can't think maybe one or two people had helmets in those days, so you were losing teeth and you were yeah. kind of getting split open regularly, and 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 that was just part of what hurling was. And to me as a kid, I found that incredibly intimidating and physically intimidating. Yeah. Um, but oh God, I I just think of the the games between Clare and Tip in the late nineties, two thousands. I I was lucky enough actually, there was a reunion for the Tip team that won in two thousand and one. Um, there in Clonmel a few months ago and I was invited down to talk talk at it and uh, I, th- th- you, you just felt it was living it was living to, to be in Parky Keeve in that old press box that's hanging out of the ceiling and to, to wait for them coming out and, and sometimes there, there was a barrier there and they would either 
vault the barrier or go around it and you kind of took the tone of what mood they're in if they vaulted it they're ready you know and um, those games you know Kilkenny tip Waterford Cork and Munster Championship at, at some stages like there's no better game they're, they're, it's, it's breathtaking I, I remember saying to someone recently that when Clare played Cork in 2013 and the replay was on a Saturday and it was under lights yeah. and I remember sitting there and it, it, it never happened to me at any event where I was there and I just got the I got goosebumps um, because it was Irish and it was unique to us and who we are and I just felt God aren't we so lucky that mm. this is ours and can you imagine our lives without the GA our summers without the GA it's kind of God so much colour would be rinsed out of our lives um, so to answer your, your question in a very long winded way hurling is on another level in my view and, and the, the physical courage of hurlers and the way they just throw themselves into these monumental games and you look at what's happened in Munster this year and the many one score games we had yeah. I, I have so much respect and admiration for these guys just massive and not uh, who, who was the best but who was your hurler the, the guy I would have said had more moments that I would nudge someone whoever's beside me and said did you see that it was Canning I, I think Canning was ridiculous what he could do with a ball maybe I'd be a bit biased Nicky yeah. Nicky English I did Nicky's book Nicky be a great friend of mine um, Nicky when I go back and I talk about fellas having the courage Nicky never wore a helmet in his life um, got some horrific injuries as a consequence of it but was just this divine skill set just this wonderful skill set probably should mention Henry as I did Henry's book as well um, but Henry was more a kind of um, a ridiculously consistently good player Nicky would have these little moments you know that you just said wow you know the, just the wrists the you know this kind of ability to just make time stop yes in the frenzy of a hurling match that's something Canning had and it's that's Kean Lynch has it these days with Limerick you know it's hopefully he'll be back now for the semi-final because yeah. it's such a joy to watch these guys that their first touch is so good everything slows down they have that half a second where everyone else is frantic mm. um, such a privilege to see fellas like that you're a perfect place to answer then you so you you've been covering Gaelic football since '85, give or take, mm -hmm. and so never more this year have people said. Now I know they said it was puke football fifteen, but this really is as bad as it gets, both structure and style of play. Mm. Would you agree with that? Do you think it's in trouble? I I think the the structure of the championship where you had groups of four and three stay in. I think that was going to create an environment that was going to be tricky. Mm. Um, I was at the Mayo-Louth match in Castlebar there a few weeks ago and, and Louth just withdrew every player into their own 45. Yeah. And perfectly entitled to do it. And you know what? From Mickey, Mickey Hart's point of view, they could have won the game in the end. They had a great chance to win the game in the yeah. end by, by doing that. Part of me feels like saying, well, people have paid into this. Do you really not feel... You know, they, people who've paid in are entitled to better than this. I did think the games last Sunday were very good. Yeah. 
Um, it's excitement. But I, it's funny you mentioned I watched that Mayo Laird game. Yeah. And I was like, this is just a complete waste of everyone's time. Yeah. With, and, and by the way, these are players who've trained hard, who are giving it their all in very hot conditions. And it's, it's not a slight on any of them. No. Nor even indeed on Mickey Hart, really, because he got loud to it in a kick of winning the game. But just there's some total, you swirl all that around and this is the offering. And I, think, and I think to be fair to Mickey, you saw what happened to him in the, in the Leinster final where they did just oh, yeah. press up and, and, and they were destroyed and Dublin looked like the second half particularly they could get goals for fun we'd be the first to say, use the word naive exactly yeah. and, and I've often said that in journalism you, know, you can lose a game by a point and we're, we're all black and white yeah. we're gonna go, well, that's why they lost and you know, a bit of naivety there at the end game management and all of this we have all of these phrases that are ultimately bullshit really yeah. a lot of the time um, so I, I think we saw signs last Sunday that there was a bit of jeopardy creeping into the whole thing and suddenly you had games that were decent and, and now there's real jeopardy there and you look at someone like Mayo and a massive time for Kevin McStay and they're suddenly in a hole here and they're, and they're going to Salt Hill to try and survive and that's not something anyone countenanced when they won in Kerry. Mm. Um, so I think the games, I suspect the games will be much better now and I would certainly refrain from any judgment on it until we see what happens in the next couple of months. Mm. Uh, somebody is wondering, uh, Jack Charlton, mm. what was he really like? <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if Jack <laughs> hid too much from uh, the cameras, but would that, that would have been a fair depiction of who he was, no? Well, I, I wouldn't pretend to have known Jack. Um, I did a one-to-one with Jack in Orlando in 1994 and again this goes back to one on one at the World Cup yes yeah see that's, that's not happening no you see and, and this is why it was I, I say it was much more enjoyable and you, you put in a request imagine putting in a request and for whatever reason Jack agreed yeah come up to the room and next thing you're sitting in this room on the 30th floor or whatever in an Orlando hotel and Jack is pulling you a pint from his oh, private place yeah and so already there there's too much colour yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean you well, can't go wrong. Well, exactly, you can't go wrong. And, you know, he would have been quite irritable with me, you know, kind of irritated by me, maybe more, more to the point, <laughs> but, but he still agreed to do it. Okay. And I remember at one stage he was, there was a game on that afternoon, he was trying to get the game on, and he inadvertently went on to the adult channel in the, in the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and next he says, oh, we'll leave that on. You know, so <laughs> so he, he had a great sense of humour. He could be he could bark at you, but in an instant he'd see the funny side of things. Yeah. And uh, do you know what? He, he had a lovely human side, which I, I suppose, you know, we've talked about Paul and, and he showed it particularly yeah. with Paul that he would bark. But there was a humanity to the man. And I think that's why he was such a good man manager, that mm. he just like he had really good players at the time. But he also had this ability to get into their hearts I wouldn't say their heads into their hearts because it was never particularly tactical um, what they did mm. and and you know Kevin Warren who had that documentary there recently it, it, it was never kind of on a whiteboard what we're doing here it was basically we're going to kick long yeah. and press them high and when you did that with really good players who wanted to play um, and they, they wanted to play right the way to that the end of that An- that Anfield game against the Dutch where everything was just I think it was was that 85 um, or 95 rather and it was just becoming a little bit frazzled yeah. and fraying at the edges but I think you know even th- though he mostly barked at us you kind of loved Jack 
he he had that he had that kind of I think he had a love for the Irish people as well a genuine love I, I don't think it was ever a kind of uh, a marriage of convenience for Jack I think he he loved coming to Westport and doing his fishing mm. and I think there was a there was a genuine connection there it's funny as you tell that story of Jack which is just great I, again not to end on a glum note by any means but I can see how for instance that one day is the equivalent of probably covering Ireland now for 20 days in its current format in terms of yeah. what you'd be able to glean from it yeah uh, yeah I, I think that's very true and but just the fact that you had a chance in those days of getting access like that yeah do you think it'll ever come back no I don't think so they've too much to lose and not enough to gain I, I think there's just a culture there of being kind of defensive um, I look at the GA particularly and, and, and it, it would strike me more forcibly with the GA Joe because every GA journalist I know is a member of a GA club mm. they're not the enemy at the gate they actually love the GA and I just think what's happening in terms of closing off access I think it's wrong I think it's miserable I think the GA needs to be really careful with its product and, and what it's doing with its product and its attitude towards promoting its project, product. And obviously you have the debate at the moment about amalgamating the women's Gaelic football and the, and the camogie and good luck with that, Mary McAleese. You know, I mean, there's so many potential issues there. But the GA itself, I think, needs to be very careful that it doesn't become very corporate in personality and, yes. and I think there's an element of that yes. creeping into it at the moment and there's an element of you know we'll always have this um, I'm not sure about that because they've handed a lot of the messaging over to PR professionals yeah with the nice taglines and again it is a touch hollow and corporate and the magic of your career I suspect has been meeting Pilkington on the sideline and him saying geez we're, we're off to smokes a week mm. you know we're taking this Absolutely. very seriously and that kind of realness I I don't know past the top 15 highest profile I don't know what I recognise many hurlers that's a great point I mean you could walk down O'Connell Street in Limerick you know a lot of the Limerick All-Ireland team who could be the, the the greatest team we've ever seen because if you think of 2019 where they were caught by Kilkenny in the semi-final they could be going for six in a row now yeah. and I think there's there's quite a few members of that Limerick team could walk down O'Connell Street in Limerick and nobody would yeah. bat an eye oh, I would think so and certainly with Kilkenny as well with the four in a row team same thing there was fellas who won man of the match in all Ireland finals and people wouldn't know them mm. um, and I, I just think that GA needs to kind of understand that the media the the the, the, the GA media particularly to me are just the finest of people like the GA is about people Joe it's about the best of people it's about human stories and most intercounty players be they male or female are third level educated they're bright people mm. they're not going to say something idiotic that's going to be put up pinned up on a dressing room door as if that's going to make any difference in this day and age anyway I just wish that you know there would be more openness and there'll be more trust there because as I said the, the, the GA media are not the enemy at the gate mm. they, they love the games every bit as much as those playing them that's true uh, somebody wonders who's your dream interview <sighs> I was going to say Roy Keane no. <laughs> Jürgen Klopp 
Um, falling hard for Jurgen. Oh, God. Uh, do, do you know what? Am I allowed to say you're a Liverpool fan? I am a Liverpool fan. Okay. I think it's pretty obvious. I'm, yeah. a Liverpool, I'm a Liverpool fan since I was 11. Um, and, you know, the, the Premier League is bonkers. Yeah. The, the world these people live in is utterly, totally bonkers. Um, and the, the money they make, I, I don't understand how you can make that money and have any sense of reality about you. But Klopp seems to do it. Um, he just has this kind of, and it, it sounds the ultimate contradiction that he has a social conscience yeah. when you're earning God knows how many millions a year. But he certainly communicates an understanding. And, and, and in a city like Liverpool, a unique city, it's, it's, it's actually not an English city. It's, it's, it's this melting pot of so many different cultures and nationalities. And it's a very angry city on so many levels and you need to pay attention to that anger and where it's coming from mm. and you need to show that you care about the people I think and I think Klopp has I think Klopp has been brilliant and he comes into press conferences and he can be asked questions about social issues in Liverpool and he will just give you a really intelligent answer and I, and I love that about him I think there's a there's there's, there's a real human quality to him, which is very, very hard to find in the Premier League at the moment. Mm. And I look at Pep Guardiola and, and I, I just don't, you know, I, more than you believe and Conor Moore's stuff. I, I can't get Conor Moore's he- voice out of my head when I think of Pep. But Klopp just gets people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think in any walk of life, having the emotional intelligence, we, you can have all the intelligence you like, but without emotional intelligence... Yes. It's wasted. Back to that point about Jack. Back to Jack. And that emotional intelligence is something I see in Klopp. If I had a dying wish, it would be, let me get an hour with Klopp. I, actually, my, my wife jokes, you know what, we'll, we'll organise a, a birthday present. We'll have Klopp walk down the drive one of these days. And you, <laughs> <laughs> you go out like a light like that. But yeah, I, I, just, I just really like Jurgen Klopp. What are you going to do next? Oh, God. Book. I've no idea, Joe, because I've genuinely nothing planned. I, right. This is really short term in terms of my thinking, having the summer off, um, spending quality time with my family. Um, as I say, we have a place down in, in Wexford that I haven't seen enough of and um, a little bit of travel lined up later in the year, which I'm really looking forward to. I, I'm just going to wait and see. Mm. I genuinely have nothing planned. I'm that quite a nice thought or a fearful Yeah, one? it's it's a bit of both. Okay. It's a bit of both because I I I am open to the possibility I'll climb the walls, you know, very shortly. But I'm kind of I've almost a child's giddiness that, you know, I have time to myself. I'm, you know, you you're, you're not going to get a message on your phone and you say, oh God, what's after happening? Yes. Can Which is a kind of 500 words on Roy Keane. Yeah, well, <laughs> 1500. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you're always on call. Yes. 24-7 and you know it. You're following the news the whole time. You're, you're always there and you you're always have to be available. And again, I get people are listening and they're probably going to say, well, it's, it's not brain surgery and they're right. It's not brain surgery. No, but there, uh, you, and you've made that point several times, but it is, it is a relentless It is. And, pursuit. you know, for 43 years, I've been preoccupied. And, yes. and I, w- I would actually say that when I've been down in Wexford, with Geraldine and you know I've been slightly preoccupied a hell of a lot of the time I would say so by thinking what's what's to do next well you know maybe she'll be sending me out to the garden to do something because uh, I'm not preoccupied now and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that and 
you know, whatever comes, hopefully something will come. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely won't be stopping. Great. Well, that's very good to hear. Um, thank you so much. We said we'd do a half hour, so it's been, I think, approaching 80 minutes. So apologies for cheating. Jesus, sorry about that. So long. No, no, it's my fault. It's my fault. Um, you've been brilliant. I mean, like everybody else, like such a fan of your work. And uh, it better not be the end of you. We, we want to see more books and more pieces in the paper. But uh, Vincent Hogan, former Chief Sports Writer Irish Independent. Thanks so much for coming in. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Joe.